Our heart sponsor for today is the 501c3 nonprofit National Treasures Artists in Residence. We are supporting them by offering an audience-requested masterclass on business plan writing. Over 30 days, you will receive daily emails with micro-tasks broken down over the month that will give you a complete plan. This will help you assemble your ideas, communicate your concept to others, and raise capital. Participants will be eligible for prizes that will help you polish your plan to optimize success. Visit AchievePodcast.com forward slash business plans with an S to register. The mind sponsor for today is upcoming podcast series, Personality Sleuths. Personality Sleuths will be co-hosted by Dr. J. Galen Buckwalter, the guest of this episode, whose career includes being the founding chief science officer of eHarmony and me, leveraging my experience as a venture capitalist and entrepreneur. We will analyze personality using a speech-based proprietary AI algorithm, along with the clues evident in social media and the popular press. Each episode will dissect the life of someone famous who gained the trust of many before becoming notorious for duping people, committing a crime, or losing exorbitant amounts of money, all while the clues were there all along in how they spoke. Tune in soon. On this episode, we have Jay Galen Buckwalter. Galen was born and raised near Lancaster, Pennsylvania, as a part of the Mennonite community known as Pennsylvania Dutch. Slightly before his 17th birthday, Galen met with an unfortunate diving accident that has required him to rely on a wheelchair for mobility ever since. As he describes it, it enabled him to focus exclusively on the world of his mind. He completed an undergraduate degree near Erie, Pennsylvania, and then came to Los Angeles to complete a doctorate in psychology. After engaging in research with USC, Galen partnered with Neil Clark Warren to become the founding chief science officer of eHarmony. He was there for seven or eight years and ultimately left to head back to USC, joining their Institute for Creative Technologies. From there, he became involved with a handful of startups. Most recently, in addition to a number of advising roles, he is the co-founder and CEO of SciML, a company focused on applying psychometric models to big data sets at scale. Galen, thank you so much for being on our show. My pleasure. Um, I always enjoy chatting with you naturally, and uh, your background is one that is just so fascinating, particularly given all that you have accomplished and how you truly are a luminary in your field. And so uh, it's a great pleasure to be able to share it uh, with our audience. Um, uh, of course, you, you, you reside uh, near Pasadena currently, Sierra Madre is your town, but uh, I like to go way back and um, you grew up in um, Pennsylvania and um, uh, a part of a Mennonite community known as the, the Pennsylvania Dutch community uh, near Lancaster. So uh, share with us, what was that like uh, being a part of that? Oh my, that was... Uh... A different world, for sure. Mm, yeah. um, but um, I, I mean, as a as a kid, it was uh, idyllic in in many ways. It, you know, growing up on a farm, um, we were Mennonites, so we we had the luxury of uh, tractors and electricity and the like. But um, you know, to to be able to be driving tractors at you know six seven years old, <laughs> uh, you know, along with having to get up at five five thirty every morning to to milk uh, 
40 cows before going off to school. Um, well, it, you know, it was, it, you know, it was rigorous, but, uh, but thoroughly enjoyable. Um, and I think, you know, uh, as with all of us, our, our early years continue to live with us uh, in some ways the rest of our lives. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, did you find yourself religious at that time of your life? I, I did, at least um, in, a, in a social sense. You know, I, I mean, the, the church was pretty much um, the bulk of, of our social lives. Um, right. my, kind of the crooks of interaction. The center yeah, point, yeah. Exactly. Um, my parents um, were progressive enough that they did let me go to public schools, which um, I am forever grateful to them. Yeah. Um, so I did have that. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I, I lived out on a farm, so you didn't, I didn't really, you know, get to hang out with the the kids at the baseball field every, every sure. afternoon, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, the church was was very much the centerpiece. Um, spirituality was something that I always was trying to figure out. Um, mm. I, I think um, you know, also being in the context of you know, just growing up on the farm, seeing the cycles of life, um, you know, in, in, you know, vivid color every, yeah, every day kind of uh, gives you an appreciation for the, the larger picture uh, of life. Um, but so, yeah, I was always trying to, to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. nice. Do you have siblings? I do. I have um, two brothers and a sister, all older. Ah, okay. So you're the baby of the family. The baby. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Well, um, I imagine a lot of that uh, physical work that you were involved with, uh, of course, to help manage uh, your family's farm, um, just made you very active. And uh, yeah. I, I know that you um, began diving. At, at one point, and if you could share with us about that, and of course the the accident uh, which impacted your life. Yeah, um, yeah. I was a um, couple days before my seventeenth birthday. Um, mm. Went went with a bunch of friends down to uh, the Susquehanna River. Um, yeah, runs through southeastern Pennsylvania. Um, and we found some some rocks to climb climb up on, and um, a friend, a couple of friends, took a dive off, and I uh, dove after them. But I dove out further um, than they had, and uh, went into a submerged rock and uh, struck the top of my head just pretty much full force and um yeah that um 
that changed my life. Um, yeah. It was immediately obvious. Like, uh, I mean, I just felt, I, I didn't lose consciousness, but uh, just my body went away. Um, yeah. And, uh, went through a near-death experience until finally got pulled down and, uh, um, and then it was um, then it was uh, you know a year basically in a, at, at that point it was a state crippled children's hospital, which uh, wow, okay. was kind of in the dark ages of rehab medicine. Um, I was injured in um, 73. Um, okay. So yeah, it, it was it was stark. Um, yeah, yeah. No, but, absolutely. Uh, well, I, I can't help but express uh, gratitude that you're still with us. Um, yeah. There's really was a, you know. a possibility <laughs> that uh, you may not have survived uh, that incident. And yeah. of course, it naturally impacted um, yeah, your life significantly uh, from there. Um, and I can only imagine how challenging it was to, to be a, a teen prime of your youth and be in this hospital in the way you've described it. Um, I, I can I just have an image in my head of how challenging that must have been uh, to go through that. Um, where did you find solace? Did, uh, was reading something you could turn to or ins yeah. inspiring yourself and, and you know, you're mentally engaging in other activities? What was... Yeah, it, um, during the, the period that I was in the hospital, it uh, really, I, I mean, my only link was my, my parents. They... Yeah. Uh, they drove 50 miles one one way to be able to you know see me for an hour um and this was after they were running a farm um yeah. milking the cows and all that so that was really my solace during that period of time um i was actually when i for several months after I got hurt, I couldn't move my arms um, really wow. at all. Um, and so couldn't, couldn't even hold a book or, uh, and I was in traction for like six months. And, um, so yeah, it, it was that connection with my folks that really kept kept me going you know i uh, i can never feel much ill will <laughs> towards sure. them after that yeah of course no that's great uh, i'm really glad to hear they were there for you in that way it sounds like it was critically important yeah but um, the the year after i got out uh, of the hospital that's when i just started reading um you know, realizing that, you know, the, the world that, that awaited me was, was in my head, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, you've certainly um, done tremendous things with that uh, with that world, and have done yeah, this was phenomenal contribution to to science, to psychology, to humanity. So um, it's 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 appreciated. Um, how long after being released from the hospital did you attend university? I, I believe you went to a school Edinburgh, close to Erie, Pennsylvania. Correct. Yeah, I. Um... I went there um, about a year after I got out of the hospital. Okay. So right. I um, took took some time to um, learn how to drive a car, and, you know, get hand controls, all that. Start started doing transfers and being um, somewhat independent. Um, and um, and then um, yeah, it, Pennsylvania had just uh, started a program for uh, disabled students um, where there was uh, personal care available at the university, and uh, I never could quite figure out why they decided to uh, that the school they would uh, equip. Um, excessively was, uh, you know, in the snow belt off of the the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania there. So, but, you know, it it was, uh, I I wouldn't say it was a stellar educational experience, but it was a certainly a stellar social experience and one of um, just realizing you know my independence and uh, and starting to realize um the the world and the life of the mind yeah absolutely what did you study I, I was a social work uh, major. Okay. Um, nice. That's great. Was there a, a social worker that had worked with you that inspired you? No, it was, I, I actually um, kind of wanted to do pre-med, but uh, I, um, my first chemistry class um, there was a professor who um, literally in lab um, made me work by myself because he said I would slow anyone else down. Um, And it was just a miserable experience. And uh, I got to find something else to do. Well, medicine's loss is um, psychology's gain. So um, I completely understand that. Well, uh, we had this conversation before about um, the alignment with something health science related, Um, you know, Galen as a name, of course, is the name of a a Roman physician who tended to the, the Roman emperors. So a strong uh, tradition of uh, uh, health uh, services there. one of the first to classify different types of uh, personality as well. So, uh, uh, see, I didn't know that. Well, that's yeah. even more poetic. 
Yeah, it is. It, uh, he, he was the one that's credited with um, in discovering the the four humors um, right. and the the personalities of you know the the phlegmatic and uh, yes, right, right. The different. Uh, wow, you know, fantastic! That's really wild. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I really, I genuinely didn't know about the, the personality aspect that kind of gave me goosebumps yeah. as you, you shared it. So, <laughs> so appropriate. Wow. That's really, that's really phenomenal. Well, um, from there, you decided you had enough of the snow and you made your way out to sunny California and uh, Pasadena in particular, where yeah. you attended a seminary. I did. I, um, I think, um, a large part of that was, you know, just uh, coming from the religious upbringing and then um, diving, you know, headlong into the uh, culture of 70s, uh, you know, kind of undergraduate schools. And uh, then I was like, ah, you know, I got to figure out where you know, what I believe. And yeah. uh, so I, I thought that um, Fuller um, Theological Seminary that um, respected seminary as well as uh, they had a uh, APA approved uh, PhD program in, in psychology. That's um, great. So made the decision to come come out here and uh, yeah I, I mean it turned out that the, the uh, my my spiritual journey I realized you know at least not in the traditional sense didn't really fit with religion but uh, um, turned out that the education in psychology was was quite quite exceptional and um, it was also you know in, in Los Angeles so I got to um, do internships and practicums at UCLA USC Fantastic. Um, all of that that's great well many would argue that um, that's precisely the point of uh, education to illuminate and uh, reveal truths about oneself such as uh, the incongruency between your, your the spirituality revealing and, and religion yeah. so uh, yeah. kudos what did you do your doctorate on your thesis um, my my thesis was actually um, I while I was going through school I um, got a job um, working at um, Huntington Medical Research Institutes uh, mm -hmm. with um, one of the the um, foremost um, um, immunologists of, of um, that that period, uh, Dr. Mary Lou Ingram, um, she actually developed um, autologous lymphocytes for the treatment of brain tumors. Um, wow. 
which, you know, now is, I mean, fairly common treatment, um, you know, lymphocytes are, are for a number of different cancers, you know, the um, autologous lymphocytes are used, but, uh, but she was just way ahead of her time. Um, so I ended up um, doing my dissertation on um, a series of her patients um, to see if there was any evidence of um, toxicity. Um, that was my original question. Um, it, it, you know, it, so it was pre and post surgery. Um, it ended up, I mean, there was no, no indication of anything um, toxic about the, the lymphocytes. Um, it, it was kind of a boring, <laughs> boring um, result, but, um, but what I ended up writing up for my uh, thesis was pretty much the, the neuropsychology of who survived and who didn't um, okay. because there, there, it, there were some real clear markers of who, um, who was not going to survive much past um, oh, wow. the surgery. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. So. Okay. Um, from there, you after Fuller, you moved to USC, where you did. did some uh, uh, gerontology research. Right. Share with us about I, that. Yeah, I um, went to um, the Andrus Gerontology Center, um, and. Um, specifically the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, um, which was uh, NIH-funded um, uh, Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. And there were, I think, five uh, around the country um, that, that were um, um, funded at that point. Um, when I started, they had been collecting data for, I think, about 12 years um, previous um, and uh, really hadn't done that much with the data set. So um, I just kind of had carte blanche to, um, mm. to clean up the data and um, start looking at, at different um, things that interested me, um, did um, some work on gender differences um, in, in cognition among older um, people with and without Alzheimer's disease. Very interesting kind of pattern seemed to be occurring where um, in in normal um, populations, um, women uh, do superior in verbal skills. Um, Interesting, okay. Things like verbal fluency, um, naming ability, um, 
but with Alzheimer's disease, they did worse, um, which got us to thinking, you know, what could be potential mechanisms for that. Um, There was a prevailing hypothesis was that estrogen um, facilitated the verbal functioning uh, in women. so we got to thinking, well, could estrogen deficit be a problem with women, um, you know, in, um, with Alzheimer's disease? So we started looking at estrogen replacement therapy, um, published one of the very first papers suggesting that um, Estrogen replacement therapy seemed to be protective against um, Alzheimer's disease. Um, That line of research ended up uh, getting a lot of traction um, to the extent that um, several years later, um, the uh, NIH added that into the Women's Health Initiative Oh, okay. um, they, they actually did a randomized um, controlled trial uh, of estrogen replacement, and they found out it didn't do anything. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, uh, it uh, goes to show you, you know, you, and no, no matter how much you try to control, um, you know, there's just no way to take out all of the influence of, you know, the socio-cultural benefits that people who take estrogen, uh, women who take estrogen, um, you know, have over those who didn't. but um, but yeah, it, it it was a great great experience. Um, also, um, uh, through that, I started doing research with Kaiser. Um, right. Access to larger databases, and uh, eventually moved to Kaiser and uh, started a behavioral outcomes um, okay. research program there. Um, How many years were you with Kaiser? I was there for five years. Um, okay. Right. And then um, during, during that time is also when uh, I had a side project with uh, uh, someone who had actually been at Fuller, with, was the dean at Fuller when All I right. went this, through there. This um, is uh, Neil Clark Warren. Neil Clark Warren, exactly. Yeah. But um, yeah, he he had uh, left Fuller to go back into private practice and work primarily with couples. And mm-hmm. um, he kind of came to the conclusion that uh, that a goodly percentage of of the couples that he saw, he felt. He could do nothing for them um, from the context of, of you know, reparative therapy. 
um, because they they were just fundamentally mismatched. So um, his question was, could we do research to help people get ahead of the curve, kind of, and match people um, at least in a way where you know the those mismatches weren't going to be as likely okay. and so yeah we we ended up developing a, and validating an extensive questionnaire and um doing um ex a lot of research with married couples um look looking at marital satisfaction as our outcome variable and then took those models that predicted um, marital satisfaction and applied them to um, to matching singles and uh, that was that was e harmony so yeah fantastic um, what a great collaboration um, and a leader in the, the marketplace and sort of a lot of copycats that came up afterwards, but uh, eHarmony always maintained the, the presence of being at the forefront, the highest quality, the most thoughtful. And uh, I believe you even, your, uh, eHarmony published statistics on this where they had the lowest uh, uh, subsequent divorce rate for couples who married that had met on the platform. Yeah, that, that's true. Uh, uh, a study uh, that John Cassioppo, um, who was uh, the now, now unfortunately uh, deceased, but a social neuroscientist from uh, University of Chicago um, had looked at, uh, I, I think the sample was close to 20,000 population-based sample of newly married couples. And um, yeah, they found that the divorce rate of, um, of eHarmony couples was about half of that of match. Um, and match was actually um, significantly lower than um, couples that had met in the wild. So, um, you know, it seemed, uh, I, I mean, there, there's some sampling issues there that, I mean, we could never say definitively that the, the sample that we, the people that came to eHarmony was the same as those that went to match, um, be, you know, because eHarmony probably did appeal to people who were more serious about long-term relationships and um, possibly a bit older. Um, but it was still kind of nice to see that yeah. that, uh, that divorce rate was um, was so much lower. I, I, you know, as every you know, founder does you know, when you're sitting around, you know, talking about starting a company, you have these big visions. And <clears throat> the one vision that, that Neil would repeatedly talk about 
was, you know, what would happen if we could lower the divorce rate of the United States by 1%? And, you know, and he figured out all of the, you know, economic um, savings from, you know, the, the fact that, uh, you know, kids would have two parent homes and all, all this. And, uh, and, so yeah, I don't know if we ever got to uh, a one percent reduction of divorce, but uh, um, it, it, it was good to see, it, at least in those in that sample, um, that that there was a clear reduction. Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, uh, you were the company's first chief scientific officer, um, playing an integral role in that initial questionnaire, which, uh, if I recall, had 450 questions or so. Yeah, it was, it was long. <laughs> I mean, you had to show commitment. <laughs> you had to show a commitment to get through that. So that was always yeah. a good indication. If you completed the assessment, then chances are you were committed to a relationship. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and who knows that that barrier to entry may have been, you know, a, a, a positive factor for us. I know, um, you know, when um, in in doing that, um, you know, all the investors were like, you know, no, that's crazy. But, you know, we were, I was very adamant about the science and, uh, um, but I mean, the, the major factor for eHarmony's success was that it was the first site that women felt comfortable because yeah. before then, you know, it, I mean, to go on a dating site as a woman was to, you know, almost, you know, be signing up to get abusive pictures and, oh, and yeah. texts yeah. sent your way. And yeah. um, and that wasn't the case with eHarmony. And yeah, that's I think, um, you know, that ended up um, bringing a whole lot of women to the site and as you know, where where women when it's a dating site, if you have a lot of women, you you have a successful <laughs> right. site. Uh, the men will come. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and uh, you're the patent holder for the assessing and matching processes. Yes. Um, yeah. We, which is great. We had uh, put together a, a very statistically and mathematically heavy kind of uh, uh, process of, of um, matching um, that, yeah, I, I mean, I still stand by, you know, I think, yeah, of course. I think yeah. there's a lot of, a um, lot of potential applications for it that um, haven't been exploited yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely, that makes sense. Um, and so Neil left after uh, several years, I think maybe six, seven years? Yeah, well, uh, 
the yeah the first time yeah yeah he's come back since but yeah, uh okay. the first time he left uh shortly thereafter and it was somewhat timed when uh, new investors came in i believe sequoia and technology crossover yeah. ventures you also uh made a transition yeah i i did um it um it became increasingly obvious that uh, my my hope was that we were going to be able to um, really do cutting edge research there and uh, and start applying um, psychometrics at, at scale in other areas like in um, job matching. Mm. Um, other types of relationship um but uh you know with as it became more of a you know clearly a for-profit you know corporation um the the appetite for messing with the the success or you know was less and less so um yeah and That's you know, I, I had a lot of, lot of science I wanted to do, right. so I ended up uh, taking, taking my leave. Um, right. After yeah. I, yeah. And you you headed back to USC. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I went uh, to a different, different campus, but. Um, went to the uh, Institute for Creative Technologies, um, which is uh, centered down in Playa uh, Vista, um, and uh, worked with uh, Dr. Skip Rizzo um, on developing um, some virtual reality um, right. scenarios. Um, the specific project that I was um, PI of was um, uh, developing a um, resilience trainer for Marines. So, um, you know, they're, they're I, I, Marines are, you know, well, any, any warfighter very well trained in um you know the physical aspects of, of combat but virtually nothing in, in the psychological um aspects of, of you know what that level of stress and um trauma you know is actually going to do right. um, to their brains to their their yeah, yeah. beings um so that well, was our uh, an effort to help them um develop some some techniques um that they could actually you know experience while in vr um yeah. you know the, the you know simulated combat um, yeah. and, and then along with keeping uh, their uh, their wits about them so yeah. to speak and um, yeah, absolutely 
Well, and PTSD being such um, an, an unfortunately large segment of, uh, you know, the veterans that come back, uh, what they suffer through. Um, this is obviously very meaningful and important research. Yeah. Please. Well, that, that's an area that, that uh, Skip's done a lot of work in as well. Yeah. It's using VR for PTSD. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's an important uh, area and a good use of that uh, technology. Uh, and I know when we've spoken about this in the past, um, you had a great definition for resilience. Um, it's sort of um, become a part of the common vernacular and people sometimes you know use it in varying contexts but yeah. uh, please share with the audience how we should be thinking about resilience yeah and th this comes from um, the work on allostasis and allostatic load by uh, Bruce McEwen um, from Rockefeller but um, his definition of resilience is, anything that we can do that's going to allow us to get back to baseline more quickly after the next stressor or the next trauma that we experience. Uh, I mean, you know, stressors inevitably, um, you know, set every system in our organism, you know, on you know defcon 2 you know yeah, so that's right we're on overdrive that's that's okay as long as we can get back to normal um, and that's that's resilience it's not you know we we don't blunt the effect of the stress we just get over it more more quickly and it, in that case um, it's at worst, no harm, no foul. And in, in certain cases where, you know, the stressors are, are ones that, um, are within our, our ability to handle, um, stress can actually be strengthening for us. Um, yeah. so. Yeah. Um, oh, fascinating. Um, from there, um, uh, you know, your entrepreneurial spirit uh, hadn't waned one bit. And so you had a series of startups uh, that you were involved with from there. And would, would love to hear about, um, uh, you know, Tide Pool and, and Payoff. And these were a bit more in the financial sector, if I recall. Yeah, Tide Pool um, was an effort to uh, initially to develop uh, some um, some uh, uh, assessment technology for um, job matching. Uh, oh. We wanted to be able to use um, image-based uh, assessments um, to make them more engaging with people. Um, we unfortunately the 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 image ai was not where it is today um we weren't really able to get as good at, at 
at that as we we needed to be at that mm. point. Um, okay. So we made a, a a bit of a a pivot to um, with Taipool then to um, use some of the uh, the gaming like features we were building um, for brain training, um, mm. kind of the Lumosity um, yeah. effort, uh, you know, to follow up there. Um, but then Lumosity uh, ended up, you know, having that big lawsuit um, brought against them by the FDA for um, making claims that weren't supported. And so that whole space just kind of dried up. And, um, and that was a learning experience. <laughs> For sure. One of those. But, um, but yeah, then I, I um, went directly to, um, to pay off, um, which um, was a fintech company. Um, originally started to um, help people develop better financial habits. Um, then they made a, a pivot to actually start um, making loans um, to um, well-qualified um, people with credit card debts to consolidate, bring, bring the um, interest rates down. Um, so we were able to do a lot of research around uh, personality and um, financial behavior, um, some fascinating stuff there that um, really haven't seen replicated too much, but just in, in terms of using personality as um, predictors of default rates and things like that. Um, it was, I, I mean, it was extremely um, effective or, you know, the order of like adding three to 5% in the prediction of things like default um, wow. over and above FICO um, variables. Um, Amazing. So, yeah. And we also did a lot of work in um, financial stress and mm. how to help people um, not, not get just totally um, you know, brought down by financial stress yeah. and, um, because, you know, the more stressed you get, the worse financial decisions yes. you typically yeah. make. So, That's right. Um, yeah, there's a desperation aspect there, which is yeah. pure psychology. And uh, I, you know, and it's uh, now that you have described it, it makes complete sense. And, and I, I would imagine that, um, yeah, personality, psychological profile, 
probably behavior of your family of origin, your environment mm -hmm. growing up have a lot more to do with our behavior around money than education. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Edu education and, and uh, financial behavior I mean, it has a miserable track record. Yeah, very low correlation. Yeah, just <laughs> coefficient there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that makes complete sense. Yeah. Well, and now you've launched uh, your own firm, uh, SciML, yeah. and um, you're looking at uh, sort of big data sets and, and applying psychometric models to that. Right. Um, are, are there some of the projects and the activity that you've been working on that you could share publicly? Um, yeah, we're, um, we're, doing um a, we're, we're getting back to resilience um developing um a kind of a personality based approach to helping um teams develop team resilience mm -hmm. um the the particularly, you know, during COVID with the increase in remote work, um, we, we find that using personality uh, and, you know, quick personality assessments to, as a way to understand kind of um, diversity as well as and then use that as a stepping stone to empathy and empathy to creativity. Um, you know, and there's nothing more resilience building than, you know, creativity. Um, right. you know, it's like, you know, our brains at its highest point there. Yeah, um, sure. So, you know, we're, we're, we're doing that. We're also um, doing a number of um, projects with um, our deep learning models that are able to detect um, both personality and emotion from uh, text. Um, so we um, one project that, that's really fun is um, we're working with uh, Professor Mickey Bergman uh, at, at uh, Georgetown, the School of Foreign Service. Um, he's an international negotiator. He was actually the, uh, <clears throat> the person responsible for getting Otto Wormbeier, the guy that was held by North Korea. Yeah, that's um, right. And, and getting uh, him released. Yeah. Getting him released, um, even though, he, you know, it turns out he was um, in a coma when he was released, mm. uh, which they didn't know until he was out of North Korean airspace. I, yeah. I didn't know that until I met Mickey. But um, we're working there on using personality, including our deep learning models, um, like on um, people's Twitter feeds, 
to help them get a, a, a better sense of who may be across the table from them um, yeah. and just trying to, uh, in general, help train these um, in budding foreign service or foreign diplomats on how to uh, improve their emotional intelligence and be able to you know, be self-aware as, as well as um, read you know the the people across the table more more yeah. effectively um but that well and social media is a great way to get access to that uh, content of course and uh, i remember you're sharing with me it's a surprisingly small number of uh, tweets that you actually need yeah for, uh, yeah we we can well with a, a motion you I, I mean you can detect emotions from you know a few tweets um personality really need more like you know 20 at least okay. 40 ideally um right. but you know personality is more stable traits yeah yeah um, yeah well for our uh, tweeter in chief it only takes one if you get it with all caps and a bunch of exclamation marks, um, becomes very clear their uh, <laughs> anger and <laughs> yeah. lack of openness, uh, insisting, of openness. <laughs> insisting that uh, he won an low, election that nobody else sees low, that he won. <laughs> very low honesty. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, talk about lack of emotional intelligence. My, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's kind of a it's such a fascinating time where we're kind of stuck in it is what I feel because it does mm. feel like a bit of a morass that I wish we could just kind of get out of or, yeah. or certainly move it along. Well, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, amazing areas that um, you're involved in and, and doing research. Um, I just wanted to go back to one concept in case not uh, everyone in our audience is familiar. When you talk about deep learning models, maybe if you could share what that means. Yeah, uh, basically it, it's neural network approaches. Um, so, and, and you know, their neural networks are, are, you know, getting more and more refined, particularly in their um, use of natural language processing um, to be able to detect patterns of, of words. And I, you know, I, I mean, the more recent, you know, algorithms, you know, look both forwards and backwards and, you know, integrate um, the, the, um, entire flow of words and word choice um, in ways that really escape the human brain um, and um, can, can start detecting idiosyncrasies mm -hmm. across different personality types. And um, it, yeah, it, it's, it's just amazing how how um, effective they're they're starting to be with 
um, understanding language. Yeah, no, it's so fascinating. Galen, this has been such a, an amazing conversation. Thank wow. you so much for your, your insights and uh, your candor and your willingness to, to share some personal stories uh, and challenging times personally. Uh, this is, it's really meant a lot. Very inspirational, all that you've accomplished and that you continue to, to want to do for the betterment of, uh, of humanity. Yeah. Uh, it's always so enlightening speaking with you, Kaylin. Uh, my mind just oh. goes in a number of different directions. So I'm always very yeah. inspired. It's very, very similar. I enjoy right. having the opportunity to um, dialogue with you. Thank you so much. Well, well, we will make this a habit. It'll be a good one. And uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll do it virtually until we, we can do it in person. But I look forward to that day very much. Indeed. Well, okay. Thank so you much. so much again. Really appreciate it. My pleasure.